So let's jump in by reading our memory verse for the series, Esther 4, 13b through 14, and then we'll pray and dive in together. So Esther 4, 13b through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word, asking that your spirit would would open our eyes and soften our hearts. Show us Jesus, teach us the gospel, make us your people. For the sake of communicating the goodness and glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Well, so far in the Old Testament book of Esther, King Ahasuerus, who if you haven't yet caught on, is clearly being portrayed as a foolish and easy, easily manipulated goon of a leader. King Ahasuerus has already been talked out of one queen into another, and now he's also been talked into giving over his power to evil Haman without really being aware of the circumstances so that evil Haman can persecute the people of God who also unbeknownst to him, are Queen Esther's and Uncle Mordecai's own people. Now, I know that was a lot to track with, so let me say it a little more simple lack. King A isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And not only has he been talked out of the old queen into a new queen, meanwhile, the bad guy, who the king doesn't even know is the bad guy, of course, The bad guy has controlled the king's own ring and all the kingdom's resources to kill the new queen's people. Good job, King A. You're doing well. So at the beginning of Esther 4, we have quite the kerfuffle going on here. Evil Haman has just hatched his plan to kill Queen Esther's and Uncle Mordecai's people. And he has the power of the king to do so, which is why chapter four starts like this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, meaning when he learned that Haman was given authority by the king to annihilate the Jews and to plunder their goods, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Not only was Mordecai wearing grief clothing of sorts, but his grief and pain were made well known by sight and sound to all around. Ha, poet didn't know it. So verse one is Mordecai continuing to make a stand like we saw in chapter three. He's making clear here that it was time for the Jews to come out of hiding because they were in danger of not only being murdered, but also plundered and entirely done away with by an evil man who, think about it, had the king's ring, money, and people resources to carry out his evil plan. Haman had King Ahasuerus in his back pocket and had all the power in the world at his disposal. It was time to stand and stop hiding as a people. So, 
Uncle Mordecai is not just grieved here, but he's also fired up. Just notice how verse 2 is phrased. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate, clothed, as he was, in sackcloth. We don't know why. Maybe the king didn't like bad news. But apparently, you didn't just hang out at the king's gate in grief clothing. But Mordecai marches right up to the king's gate in sackcloth, knowing full well that's a no-no because he worked there and he knew the rules. So Mordecai is not just grieving. He's intentionally making a statement and he's signaling to his own people that they've got a serious problem. So verse three, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, (laughs) meaning wherever the command and the decree that King Ahasuerus signed, but that Haman initiated, wherever that command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So they mourned and fasted and prayed to, according to the book of Esther and its use of the name of God so far, to an unknown, nameless and faceless someone somewhere? No, of course not. They were seeking deliverance from the hidden king. But interesting twist. Notice how Esther is portrayed as sort of out of the loop compared to the rest of her people, or at least she's being portrayed as refusing to do much about it. Just look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed, which sounds good at first, but turns out she was mostly distressed about the optics of Mordecai's grieving. Notice what she does. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth so that he might be a little more presentable, right? Uncle Mordecai, buddy, whatever's wrong, I'm sure it's going to be okay. And uh, here's some new duds. It'll help you out a little bit. That did not go over well. (laughs) Keep reading. She sent garments to him so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them, which was a signal to Esther from Mordecai, like, honey, clothes aren't my problem. So verse five, then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai, listen closely, to learn what this was and why it was. Queen Esther sent her personal assistant to learn from Mordecai what this was and why it was. So wait, all the kings, people in the kingdom, And all the Jews throughout the kingdom knew of this decree that threatened to destroy the Jews, but Esther didn't, or at least pretended not to know. We're not told here how nor why, but Esther is somehow oblivious or or fearful or something. So she sends her personal assistant to go find out about the kerfuffle that everyone else in her entire queendom knew about but her. Verse 6, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate because that's where you went to go get the scoop. And Mordecai, who worked there, told him 
told Esther's assistant all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman, evil Haman, had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And notice this, commanded her. He commanded her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Notice that as a sort of foil to Haman, who had manipulated the king from inside the palace, notice that, notice that Mordecai is commanding the queen from outside the palace. Who's really pulling the strings here? It says in verse 9 that Mordecai commanded her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him, with the king, on behalf of her own people. This is Mordecai saying, you may be queen, but I'm still your daddy. Girlie, you're getting too big for your britches and too comfortable in your hoity-toity palace. By the way, I think Mordecai probably had a little green county in him. So, so Uncle Mordecai goes a little country on her and says, your people are in danger of annihilation and you're sending me a change of clothes? We're out here fasting and mourning and praying and you're sending me new duds? I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, Mordecai speaking, I'm commanding you to go to the king to set this straight. Because think about this, Esther. You and I both know that you are the only one with any power to do anything to stop Haman. Mordecai, from the outside, is bringing down the hammer or pulling out the switch or some such southern disciplinary tactic. So, verse 9. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded, notice, same word used to speak of Haman's command. So we've obviously got a back and forth of this Mordecai-Esther power struggle going on here. Verse 10, then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, Esther speaking, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, they know if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, without being summoned, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Then she says, but as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. In other words, <laughs> do you want me to die, Mordecai? If I do as you've commanded me, Mr. Smarty Pants, I will most certainly die. And then what will happen to your awesome plans? Not only that, but I haven't even been called in for an entire month by the king for any, well, you know. Chances of getting out alive are not good, Mordecai. Problem is, her retort, her, her response to Mordecai merely shows that she still didn't get it. Or she refused to admit the stakes or something. <laughs> or not told exactly why, but the implication here at this point in the story, in the narrative, is that Esther, and now we're preaching, y'all, Esther was working hard 
to avoid doing what she knew only she could do. So pick it up at verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Like you're not listening, Esther. Either you stand up and do what you alone as queen can do or we all die. Verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God will find someone willing, but you and your father's house will perish. God will find someone willing and you and your family will die. Those are the stakes, Esther. Plus, keep reading. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows, Esther? Maybe God has, oh, I don't know, put you in the seat of queen as someone who just happens to be in what is perhaps the most suitable position of power in the entire world to be able to do anything more than what I or any one of your other people can do? I mean, who knows? Who knows, Queen Esther? I think Uncle Mordecai doesn't get enough credit for being one of the fathers of Jewish guilt, uh, but he wasn't being sarcastic. He was deadly serious. Perhaps this moment to save your people to deliver them is exactly why you are a queen, Esther. Well, that did the job. Look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. A few helpful lessons from this passage. First, we need Mordecai's to help us see where God is working in us and in the world around us. We have a saying around here among staff that goes something like this. You cannot know yourself until godly people around you tell you. Think about this. You cannot know yourself until godly people around you tell you who you are. This isn't just about having a good understanding of the church and the body of Christ and how that works and, and our giftedness. It's, it's simple logic and math. You are the only person on the planet that isn't always experiencing you from the outside. I'll give you a moment to write that down and let it simmer. You are the only person on the entire planet that isn't always experiencing you from the outside. If we'll just <laughs> stop talking and listen and be attentive and watch the feedback that others are constantly trying to give us, we'll find godly Mordecai's all around us, trying to help us see where God is working in us and around us. It took multiple times back and forth for Esther to start seeing and listening to what, to what Mordecai was trying to tell her. So friends, buy into the body of Christ as the God-given vehicle for learning who you really are and what God really wants you to be. Stop talking and start listening. Ask a Mordecai to tell you some things about you that you need to hear and then just stop being a self-centered oracle of the universe for about a second and just listen. Listen. 
Maybe you need to be in a life group or regen or re-engage, and you need to ask others in your group to help you see where God is working in you and where you might fit into his plans. If we would allow a Mordecai into our lives, we may begin to see and hear and learn some new things about ourselves and about who God has made us to be. Second thing is that we don't have to live in the king's palace to move the kingdom of God forward. We don't all have Queen Esther's resources at our disposal. Well, like, likely that not any one of us watching today comes anywhere close to having Queen Esther-like resources at our disposal, whether that's money or power or position. Uh, if so, by the way, just download our app and click on giving on the homepage. Just kidding. Not really. So while we may not live in the king's palace or we don't have as much as we'd like, every one of us has not only more than we think, but resources that are left unused. Whether it's material or spiritual gifts or our talents or time. Think about it. Mordecai didn't have Esther's power or wealth or position, but he did have the resource of a long-term relationship of authority with her to be able to command the queen of Persia from outside the palace. He used what he knew he had. We need to move the kingdom of God forward with what we have instead of with, with what we don't. If you've got a room in your house and love in your heart for it, there are orphans that need homes. If you've got time in your schedule and a vision to help, we've got elderly folks that need to be visited. If you've got an extra hour a Sunday and you can pass a background check, we need help in kidsmen. Friends, the kingdom of God doesn't need what you don't have, but what you do. Third thing is that we don't have to be in if I perish, I perish moments to make a difference. If the previous point was about resources, this one's about timing. It's easy to think, well, the stakes, they aren't as high in my life as Queen Esther. I'm not in if I perish, I perish moments that require that kind of strength of faith and purpose. But the truth is, for the Christian who understands that they are embroiled in a daily battle with sin and evil and the powers of this present darkness, we have a sense of being created for things that are always bigger and more important than they may seem on the outside or according to the circumstances, which is to say that for the Christian having an if I perish, I perish attitude, even about the small things of everyday, boring faithfulness. That is how we all make a difference. In God's economy, every little moment of daily boring faithfulness, when it seems unimportant, makes a difference to the God who, who not only cares about your holiness, but uses your faithfulness to witness to who he is. At every moment, and in all circumstances. We are able to, we are able to be faithful and let God decide how to use it. So let's take just a moment, friends, and think about this takeaway question today. Are you listening to a Mordecai, stewarding resources for kingdom movement, and being faithful when it's not as boring and small as it seems? 
Friends, as we've been saying in this series, God uses everyday boring faithfulness to build his heroes and to expand his kingdom. When we're listening to godly people connected to the body, looking for ways to use what God's given us and being faithful, even when we think it doesn't count, we can have the confidence that God will use it, that he will use us when he wants in the ways only he can so that he will be glorified. Father in heaven, we want to be people who are faithful with what you've given us and not fixated on the circumstances that aren't or the things that we don't have. We want to be people who are so bought in for who you are and what you're doing in the kingdom through people who look like Jesus to extend the gospel to others. We want to be so bought into that, Lord, that we say, tell us, Mordecai's around us, who we are and how we're gifted and what we need to learn to be a part of that mission that you're doing, Lord. We want to be faithful in the small things that are never truly small things so that you would use our small, everyday, boring faithfulness in ways that prepare us and strengthen us, but that most importantly, you use to witness to the truth that you're a God who changes lives, who softens hearts, who opens eyes to see so that we can be a part of what you're doing to make people new, to raise people from the dead, to do the miraculous work in lives all around that can only happen because your son Jesus was perfect, lived for us in ways that we can claim as our righteousness and that he was raised to new life through the power of the spirit that can be in us the thing that continues to make us like you. The thing that continues to have us hear from you so that we can use what you've given us. Step out in faith. Be faithful in the ways that you've called us to. Make of us, Lord, a people that you use for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.